Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to some great audio storytelling from around the world and share the best of it with you. Today, Planet Money unpicks the global economy and the forces that shape it, including how duty-free shopping was invented, the land of duty-free in just a moment. Then Multi-Story finds the best stories and memorable characters from England's network of 40 local radio stations. Not many people know me, Bluffin Nobody calls you Robert. No. Oh, it's almost like you flinch when I say that word. (laughs) And from the ABC in Australia, Ladies We Need to Talk tackles delicate subjects with a good sense of humour. Look, it's easy to think that you're the only one in an average relationship. I mean, have you looked at Instagram lately? Literally everyone I know on there is drinking wine with their lover in Santorini right now. My eyes are sore from all the hand-holding, tongue-kissing, date nights, romantic holidays and abdominal muscles. Makes me sick. I hate them. (laughs) Bastards. And the investigative podcast Reveal exposes a new and surprising political battleground. The so-called alt-right is moving into comics. This is information warfare, and comics are paramount right now. I like the Marilyn Monroe-shaped redhead. Who's she? And do please share any good podcasts you've been enjoying recently. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. I don't know about you, but I've always been a bit of a sucker for the duty-free shop at the airport. The idea of getting stuff I don't really need, only much cheaper. I'm never really sure if it's even saving me any money, but I don't let that stop me. And I'm not alone. The global duty-free market is worth 70 billion US dollars a year. And that's predicted to rise to over 110 billion annually within the next five years. NPR's Planet Money's been telling stories about the global economy and the forces that shape it for more than a decade and over 900 episodes. And if economics reporting sounds a little bit dry and dull and not really your thing, then this show might surprise you. It's engaging, explains sometimes complex ideas in a way that makes sense and aren't too patronising. It'll even make you laugh. So back to the duty-free shop. How did this strange idea that air travel somehow qualifies you to save money on booze, perfume and chocolates even start? Planet Money hosts Robert Smith and Karen Duffin explain. The story of duty-free starts with a bit of Irish luck. 
In the 1940s, when people were traveling from New York to London or Paris, they were in these propeller planes. And to refuel, they had to land in the first runway they saw after crossing the Atlantic. And that was Western Ireland, County Clare, along the Shannon River. And so here was this former mud flat that all of a sudden became the grand gateway to Europe. In the 40s and 50s, every famous person that crossed the Atlantic almost certainly wound up going through Shannon. So movie stars, uh, presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens, yes. they, they all landed yeah. in Shannon. They all had to land at Shannon Airport. Brian O'Connell was a businessman in the region, still lives there. And he says that everyone realized pretty quickly that they needed to upgrade the local amenities for all these movie stars. In those days, the airplane ride from the United States was long and uncomfortable and bumpy. Sometimes it was even in these flying boats, basically planes that would land on water. Um, you were probably tired. You could be cold because obviously the uh, particularly the flying boats flew quite low over the Atlantic compared with uh, planes today. So people were looking forward particularly to good food and good drink. This is when our duty-free hero, Dr. Brendan O'Regan, enters the story. Don't let the doctor part fool you. It is an honorary degree. Brendan O'Regan had been a bartender, a hotel clerk, a caterer. And when the Shannon Airport realized that all the movie stars were coming, they needed someone quick. They hired Brendan O'Regan to feed them. He was a man who was very soft-spoken, quiet, calm. There was no nonsense about him. When the movie stars got their pictures taken, you could sometimes see O'Regan in the background. He's a dapper man with sandy hair slicked back. O'Regan had this knack for promotion from the very beginning. Rather than continental cuisine, which is what they were serving at airports everywhere, he served Irish food. But he dolled it up with all these place names. Oh, look, this is Kerry Lamb and Dublin Prawns and Limerick Butter. And when he would serve whiskey in the coffee, he topped it off with this thick layer of local cream, and he named it the very first Irish coffee. Wait, O'Regan created the very first Irish coffee? It's delicious. (laughs) Irish coffee is the best. There at the Shannon Airport. And he ran this little kiosk next to the restaurant and it was it was nothing really little mini bottles of whiskey and trinkets and cheap stuff but the important point here is that everything was always taxed back in those days well not everything because O'Regan noticed that there was this loophole in the British Isles it had been a tradition that sailors about to head off on a long sea voyage could bring on board rum and whiskey with out paying duties. Yeah. Which, I don't know, why, why would they do that? Just to keep keep the crews happy? Or? I think that's right. Yeah, I'd suggest that must have been an element of it or have them sleep off a lot of the time. I don't know. But that was a tradition that went way back to, I think, 17th century or way, way, way back, hundreds of years. And strangely, this loophole was still in effect in O'Regan's day. In 1950, he was on a trip to the United States and he decides not to fly back to Shannon, but to take a cruise ship, the SS America. And O'Regan notices when he's on board that the alcohol on the ship is way less expensive than the stuff he's been serving at the airport. All this alcohol and tobacco was being sold duty-free. Because they were in international waters, this is like the law of the high seas. They were, in, they were on the high seas. So he said, wait, now we're competing with these guys by air. It's not fair that I can't have the same tax advantages they have. And this was the genius of Brendan O'Regan. He went to the Irish government and he said, essentially, 
what are airplanes but boats of the sky? That's kind of true. True. And what are airline passengers but modern-day sailors of the clouds? Right. Do they not also deserve their tax-free rum and perfume and Haribo brand gummy bears? There were not Haribo brand gummy bears. His exact words are lost to history. But we do know that a lot of people in the Irish government said, wait, tax-free? Are you kidding me? Because every Department of Finance, every customs people worldwide resist uh, giving away tax revenue. Sure. And particularly in this case, morally, the idea of who you, who's benefiting out of this, wealthy people who f- fly the Atlantic in planes. I mean, that's only a tiny percent of the population. Why should we do any good for them? The government stood to lose a lot of money if they went with this tax-free scheme because in some cases, when you buy alcohol, most of the price tag is actually taxes. Yeah, for, for example, I mean, just even taking today, if you buy a bottle of wine down the street here in the United States, there is a duty added to the cost of that wine if the wine comes from overseas. But even if the wine is made in the United States, there is a federal excise tax on alcohol added to the price. And then each and every state adds their own excise taxes to the wine. And this is all hidden in the price tag. Plus, then when you bring the wine to the counter, often you have to pay sales tax again on the total. Brendan O'Regan said to the Irish government, yes, yes, you will lose some money in taxes. But in the long run, if we do this, we'll attract people to come to Shannon. If we attract people to come to Shannon, they'll see Ireland. Some of them might decide to go and visit the place will make people aware of Irish goods. Irish whiskey was not properly, it was, it was minuscule in the U.S. compared with uh, Scotch whiskey. And uh, we'll make money because uh, I have the franchisee of, of this government-owned uh, uh, airport and uh, I'll, you're making the profits, so I'll, I'll make you a lot more profits. And particularly, I'll make you dollar profits. Dollar profits. So Ireland said, all right, let's try it. But... We are keeping you on a very short leash. O'Regan opened the first duty-free shop in the Shannon Airport in 1951. Okay. It was only for passengers. And he did this trick that you will recognize from today. It was located between the lounge and the restaurant, so you had to walk through it to get to anything. I hate that. No, this is brilliant. And just like he'd promised the government, he featured local foods and crafts. I saw an early photo hanging in the airport. There's a picture of uh, Gene Kelly, the the uh, the old dancer from the old days, buying butter or cheese or something. And he's at the duty-free, and they're selling what looks like uh, a, a ham, bacon, honey, cheese, jam, and eggs. Wait, was this like a farmer's market in the airport? I think the local stuff was kind of for show, because honestly, from the beginning, this was all about cigarettes and alcohol. Whiskey and smokes were apparently one-third the price you would pay outside the airport. It was so cheap that the Irish government was paranoid that Irish gangs would try to smuggle alcohol out of the airport. I mean, you could make a fortune, right? They required O'Regan to take inventory three times a day. He had to account for every single bottle. If he accidentally dropped or misplaced a single bottle, he would have to pay all the taxes on it. And this was a hit. Within just six months, O'Regan had to expand the store because all of these other manufacturers wanted their products in there, too. I mean, this was a captive market of rich people. Sure. On vacation. Yeah. 
So in came the Leica cameras and the Omega Swiss watches. And even relatively inexpensive products discovered that they could get some of that airport glamour by just getting placed between the Chanel Number no. 5 and the cuckoo clocks. At least that's what Mr. Tobler of Switzerland thought. Mr. Tobler was a, was a real person. Wait, Mr. Tobler? Theodore Tobler, Theodore Tobler, who created the chocolate bar. Not just any chocolate bar, the Toblerone, a triangular prism of deliciousness. It was sold in that very first Shannon duty-free shop. Tom Armitage is an executive with Mondelez International, which owns Toblerone. The word comes from the combination, obviously, of his surname. Tobler. With the Italian word Torone, which means kind of like nuka. It's kind of like that uh, nutty, chewy, oh, uh, toffee kind of contraction. We'd say nougat. Nougat? Oh, sorry, that's, nougat. My, <laughs> that's nougat? my British. I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Nougat. nougat. Yes. I just called it nougat, but we can call it nugget if you... Nugget, um, nougat. If... Anyway, but I know that duty-free was a huge break for the chocolate bar, which is odd because there aren't really heavy duties and taxes on chocolate, not like alcohol. But it did fit the duty-free aesthetic. It was kind of weird, fancy-looking, yet you could buy it with leftover change in your pocket from what you didn't spend on that Swiss watch. Exactly. It would take a few more years for Toblerone and the duty-free concept to spread worldwide. All these international delegations would visit O'Regan's shop, and they saw how much he was making, and they thought, wait a minute, anyone could do this. Amsterdam opened the second duty-free shop in the world in their airport in 1957. In 1962, a private company, DFS, opened the first duty-free shop in the United States, in Hawaii. Tom Armitage, the Toblerone guy, says that the numbers just took off from there. Duty-free stores will do $70 billion worth of business just this year. Wow. Robert Smith and Karen Duffin on NPR's Planet Money, episode number 841, The Land of Duty Free. And that episode was originally published on May the 11th, 2018. And if you'd like to listen to more, then go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And there's a list of 10 favourite Planet Money episodes that was prepared to mark the show's 10th anniversary last year. Every community's got its colourful stories and its memorable characters. But how do you take a great local story and get it in front of the widest possible audience? That's the challenge that Multi-Story from the BBC tries to tackle as it draws on England's network of 40 local radio stations. Each episode's made up of a few different stories hanging together around a theme like parenting or animals. I'll speak to Becca Bryars, who produces and presents the show in just a moment, but first I want to play you some of it. And this is from an episode called Searching, and it features a New Zealander based in London doing a very important job. We've had uh, 50-inch plasma TVs. An old Singer sewing machine. Weighs a ton. Half roll of carpet. An ornamental fox wearing a crown. A stuffed penguin-type toy. Power tools. Sleeping bags. Tripods. Shopping trolleys. A large box of Pampers. Other brands are available. It's kind of like the generation game for London. It's just like a conveyor belt of random stuff that comes through and, and finds its way here. Paul Cohen is the manager of the Transport for London Lost Property Office. 
anything found by staff or handed in on a train, tube or bus service operated by TfL ends up here, where it's recorded, labelled and stored, just waiting to be reunited with its owner. That's in the best case scenario anyway. With over 1,000 new items arriving in the office every day, they like to keep the system as simple as possible. As BBC Radio London's Rob Oxley discovered when he went along for a tour. So we're here next to Baker Street Station in the basement here of the buildings and Mm. we've got these just sort of floor-to-ceiling shelving racks and this is three months' worth of stuff around. Three months' worth. So what we have is, is here are some clothing items which have been found in the last few days. So every day we'll put on board onto these shelves anywhere between sort of 100 to 200 new items of clothing and yet just two bays along we have clothing which has been here for three months. So what we'll do is we'll be ready to take these off the shelves. So this little space continues to move around as new property gets put on and property which has been here and is unclaimed after three months gets taken off. I see, and we can actually see the the difference here because on uh, this shelving unit on my left, we've got sun hats, some lighter jackets, whereas here, We've got winter coats. The weather, especially this year, has has changed and been such a difference between the winter when we had quite a large snow and the summertime. We were enjoying one of the the, the nicest periods of of sunny weather I can certainly remember. When it's raining, obviously the umbrellas coming through. We're down to about the smallest number of umbrellas in stock that I can recall for 10 odd years. And it's not just clothes and umbrellas that get left on London's public transport system. So we've moved from the bags and the clothing and uh, buggies to what looks well, it looks more like a sort of a sorting office at the post office. We've got loads of uh, items in envelopes. What, what, what's in this, uh, these aisles? It's a very uh, practical solution. Um, when we get small items such as cards or books or keys or glasses or uh, purses or wallets, in order for us to be able to store them so that we can keep them safe and retrieve them, they're all put into their own individual envelope. Uh, which is then stamped and kept in order. Some people think that a lost property office is a large box where you just rumble through and and see what's inside there. That might work if you've got a dozen items, not when you've got 70,000 items. We go from lots of different books to what looks like tablets and things. Yep. I mean, we're in a secure store, so we keep everything together. Um, Our electronics will go together, cameras, laptops, mobile phones. It's fascinating when... When a new piece of electronic equipment comes out, how quickly it takes until it comes in. So if a new phone comes out, generally it's in the first two or three days that that we'll get one in here. So someone's spent all their hard-earned cash, gone out and bought it, shown it off to their mates and promptly left it on the tube. (laughs) Do you ever get, probably less of a deal these days with how long batteries last, but do you ever get phones ringing still once they're handed in? You know, if I'm doing a very early shift, the alarms will go off. It's like the dawn chorus until they they run flat. I noticed you said about the changing technology. There's a case over there with palm pilots on it, which I'm guessing is is empty or or has uh, something else in it. No, people hold on and carry everything. Uh, Just the other day, I got a 56K modem Brand new, unopened in its box. I love that. Last year, I had a copy of Microsoft Word on 63 three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks. I thought, how fantastic that these things are still out there circulating. 
who's to say why people have something and they've got every right to lose that as, as much as a brand new iPhone. This is one of the best days of my life. <laughs> yeah, she's so happy. She was so exciting to come here. <laughs> yeah. Paul Cohen says staff sometimes have to go the extra mile to find an item's rightful owner. We're actually obliged by law to contact the owner if we find a name and address inside the property. And for around one in eight items, we're able to do that. So there's a, an email address or an address we can contact the person immediately. It depends on the value of the item, to be fair, and, and you know the context of it. We have had things which are genuinely urgent. And, you know, these days you can just go online, start to play detective. I mean, we're at 200 Baker Street, which is just up the road from 221B Baker Street, the home of the legendary Sherlock Holmes. Our computer system is, is named Sherlock. So it's very much, you know, where can we play uh, detective? Are there ever some items where the, the three-month limit's approaching and you think, no, no, we need to hold on to this just a little bit longer, this, this is something special that perhaps yep. needs to be reclaimed? Yep, absolutely. And uh, uh, cameras are one of those things. I recall one which had um, some wedding photos, so it was, it was on a honeymoon. That has sort of a personal attachment. You think, if you've lost your honeymoon photos, that's, that's a big deal in anybody's life. In this particular case, it was a happy ending. It was after a lot of detective work and cross-checking different social media accounts and, and looking at friends lists on Facebook versus Twitter posts and looking at where people have been on holidays and trying to sort of piece together this puzzle and we're able to contact this chap who was in San Francisco and just say look uh, we believe you found your camera and he was completely gobsmacked we can't do it for everything but for those things which have an obvious importance it, it's right for us to do so where, where we can How did you end up here in charge of uh, lost property? How did you get into lost property? Well, a little bit of karma involved in that. One very early morning after a 24-hour flight from back in New Zealand, I was on my way home uh, along the Piccadilly line and you have those moments of realisation where you're not actually thinking about something and it just pops in your head and says, I've lost my laptop. Out of nothing. And I thought, that's it, it's gone. But I did inquire with the lost property office, which happened to be at the airport, and got it back. And I thought, that's fantastic. The feeling for me was great. Fast forward a couple of years, and I've been working at Transport for London, and I visited the lost property office, and it, it really took my fancy. And when the opportunity came up to apply for a position, I did so with great enthusiasm. And uh, for my sins of, of, of being here for the last sort of eight, nine years, it's a fascinating place. It's hard work. It's repetitive. We're dealing with a lot of items that will never be reclaimed. So, you know, there is this feeling, is this wasted effort? And yet, in order for the property to be reclaimed, for those who do want to get it back, we have to sort through everything. And everything has a story attached to it. It's not just an item. It's the story of, you know, what did it mean to the person? What did the loss mean to them? Some people take loss really significantly. And it's also about sharing the, just the joy when people get their property back. You can be very philosophical working here, and I think it, it helps for to, to think of the stories and, and sometimes to make up the stories. It's, I think it's a reflection that transport is at its heart about people. It's not about trains and buses, it's about moving people. Some of episode five of Multi Story called Searching, and Becca Briars, who puts the show together, told me how she does it. 
BBC Local Radio. We have 39 to 41 stations, depending on who you ask. So I'm going to go with 40 in the middle. But we've got 40 stations spread out across England, largely placed in cities. And, you know, they're there to represent the local communities and they have news and they have stories. And often they don't go any further than the area that the radio station transmits to. But my theory was that, you know, just because something happens in the very north of England, it doesn't mean that people in the very south aren't interested in that if it's a really great, compelling personal story. So that was kind of the basis for it to bring out some of the best of these stories that are being told all around the country and put them into a podcast in one place. And I was also really keen not to make it just kind of a standard thrown together highlights kind of package deal. Um, you know, I wanted to add a little bit of myself and a little bit of music in there and a, just have a little bit of fun with it, really. So it kind of fitted the podcasty sound that I guess maybe we're a bit more used to hearing from America, you know, this American lifestyle. I will admit that I've borrowed heavily from that kind of school of podcasting. Because you've what you do every episode, you have a kind of theme, don't you? And these different stories all revolve around a certain theme, whether that's family or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I tend to try and look for themes, not super, super obvious ones, I hope. Uh, I mean, some of them have been because I've done ones like animals, which is obviously just about animals. But I've tried to make them a little bit surprising and each one in each episode a little bit different. And it's key for me as well to get a good reflection of the country because, you know, for such a small island, there's a real diversity of voices and experiences um, and I wanted to reflect that across the series really. So if you've got these 40 local stations all over the country broadcasting you know more local localized stories are you listening to all of those how do you find the stories who, who's, <laughs> you, know, you can't be listening to all of it can you? My whole working life and weekends would be taken up by list I don't think it's possible actually because of course they're all broadcasting 24 hours a day so yeah Finding the stories is is interesting. I like to say that there's a really great system I've worked out, but it's been a lot of luck. I've been in the lucky position to travel to all of the local radio stations because I used to be a trainer. So I train people how to use technology for broadcasting. So I kind of have built up a few contacts there and met some like-minded producers. So they were my first point um, of contact. What I've said to people is I want the stories that you can't forget about. You know, the stories that you go home at the end of the day and you share with your mates in the pub, the people that you've interviewed that you think six months later, you know, I wonder how they're getting on. They're the kind of stories that I was looking for for people. So that's kind of how I approached it first. And those producers mentioned it to other producers. I also did a lot of snooping in folders like audio folders um, to see what people were saving up for award season I probably shouldn't admit to that and yeah it's some of it's been super super random and at times I've just literally I don't know I've got a topic in mind I've got two really strong stories for it and I've just gone through the local radio archives looking for key words like dog cat <laughs> Of course. So I don't know if I should admit to this because I should be seen as we're the BBC and we're a very professional operation, but it, it has been quite DIY at times. But, you know, it's been great in a way because sometimes I've found real gems. You really but, have. Uh, and you got, I think it's 11 episodes, isn't it, in the first series and each one features, you know, anywhere from, what, three, four, five stories. Have you got any favourite ones that you just keep thinking about? Farmer Wink in the first episode... 
They didn't like me at school. Didn't like the way I talked. I can remember one of them gave me the stick one day. He had to read two or three lines out of this book. Anyway, my line, I also remember, my line was, the horse was eating glass in the glass field. He's almost part of the inspiration for this because when I was doing a previous job um, a couple of years ago, William Wright, he he's a presenter at Radio Lincolnshire and he mentioned in passing this incredible farmer he spoke to um, who'd never really left the farm that he grew up on and he'd never been on a train before until William took him on a train at the age of, I think he was in his late 60s. And, you know, I said, oh, can please send it to me. I really want to listen. The, the farm where you live now, that's that's not where you were born, is it? No, no, not far away, though. People won't believe me, like, when I tell them. Until I was five years old, the only water that we had to drink was out of pit in the corner of a glass close, and the cows used to drink out on it. And Mum used to fetch it in two buckets and strain it through a muslin cloth. And that's the only water we had to drink till I was five years old. He's just great because he's one of those people that you wouldn't necessarily meet. I mean, you wouldn't bump into him in the street because he rarely leaves his farm. But he's still got something to say about life. And, you know, also the novelty really is his his accent, which is very, very strong. And he uses words that I'm not even sure what they are, but you kind of get the gist of what he's saying. So he's definitely a favourite. But while we've got some time travelling, where did the name Wink come from? I've always been called Wink, even since I was a little old boy. When I lived on the farm, there was a chap there, his name was Wink, called him Winky Stark. And I always used to go with him in his tractor when I was about two years old. It stuck from that lot. He was called Wink, so I, I was called Wink after that, and I've always been called Wink. You ask anybody about Wink, but you ask anybody about my proper name, they'll not know who you're talking about. But not many people know my proper name. Nobody calls you Robert. No. Oh, it's almost like you flinch when I say that word. <laughs> and that partly is down to the skill of William's interviewing too, because he's never patronising. And I think, I think in that situation, somebody could be a bit patronising and think, oh, well, this guy's just, what does he know of the world? And as well as Farmer Wink, Becca, are there any other stories that really kind of stick in the memory? I guess one that's not so much of a story well, it is a story because it's a different way of storytelling is one of the poems that I use. So in terms of setting up a theme, I actually used the poem's title for it. And it was um, a poem called Fam uh, by a London poet. In fact, two years ago, he was London's young poet laureate, Caleb Femi. And he, he wrote a poem based on the slang word fam. I don't know, is that a word that's used in New Zealand? It's not used in New Zealand, but I'm familiar with it from watching shows like Top Boy and that kind of thing. So it's kind of a, a street term for friends, associates, not just your immediate family, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So people say fam, fam, and it's kind of like, yeah, I've got your back, we're friends. When we say fam, we don't mean what we have in common with blood. We mean you are the mirror that shows forth my better side. We mean you are the brother I chose and a sister I keep. We mean you and I have matching scars, so let's swap stories. What I love about it is it really just set up that episode, which then led on to the fact that family isn't just 
blood, basically, and it can be anyone who supports you. So actually, it led to a real diversity and an exploration of what those stories were in a really simple setup of two minutes. We mean a call and response and casting protection spells. We mean teasing out miracles from concrete. We mean a smoke signal when you are lost inside your own ribcage. We mean the biggest inside joke on the ends. We mean we have to laugh. Crying doesn't stop it from happening. We mean don't ask how we're cousins. We mean God, command the ground to spew back up the body. We mean famine against Babylon. We mean fam. Fam. And, you know, it's a good reflection of what else local radio does, because that was part of a project we did across the whole country where local poets, poets that are linked to a certain area, were asked to write a poem inspired by a local dialect word. So, for example, where I live in Leicester, the word was Mardi, which means kind of moody and grumpy. Um, And we had a poet writer here. So it's just it's kind of another way of, you know, taking something local and giving it to the world. Becca Bryars, the producer and presenter of Multi Story from BBC Local Radio. And series two of the show starts in March. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Ladies, We Need to Talk is a podcast from the ABC in Australia that tackles potentially delicate topics head on. It's funny with a sensitive side and includes some great personal stories. And although it's described as for women by women, that didn't stop me from enjoying it either. Recent episodes have covered mean girls, menopause, cosmetic surgery and anxiety. Here's one that confronts a very tricky question. We've probably all got ideas about what a great relationship should look like. But when the reality doesn't measure up to these expectations, when the passionate soulmate of your dreams doesn't quite materialise, host Yumi Steins asks, is it ever okay to settle for average in a relationship? Our biological clock can be a powerful dictator. For me, having never wanted kids, I suddenly had an overwhelming desire for a baby when I was 25 years old. I met a guy and within two weeks I was pregnant. Now look, of course, not everyone wants kids and not everyone can have kids, but in many cases, that clock can make you think less romantically and more pragmatically about relationships and family planning. And for some people, that means settling. My name is Felicity. I'm 39. I've been married for seven years um, and I've got three children with a partner who I settled for in 2011. Oh, my goodness. I think our path to marriage was, I would describe it as rapid-fire decision-making rather than love, lust. I really liked him. I enjoyed my time with him and I know my lifespan for a kind of relationship. I knew that this relationship with him was going to last a long time, that maybe it wasn't going to last forever. But at the point at which we realised it wasn't going to work, it would be too late to have kids and too late to be in this partnership. So for me, it was like, it sounds so unromantic, but if it's going to be anyone that I have a family with, it's going to be this guy. And if it's going to be this guy, then it may as well be now. I've definitely settled in my relationship. I think on all objective measures, when you think about settling, it means choosing something that is less than what you thought your ideals were. But in all the traditional ways in which I think I've settled, there are heaps more ways in which this relationship's been more elevating than I thought it would be. So I feel like that's it was a good decision to settle. Um, and it doesn't, for me, have any negative connotations anymore. It feels like 
sensible decision making. Felicity's settled for average and clearly hasn't looked back. For her, there was no crushing, ridiculous romance and some people looking on judge her for it. So I guess it seems like settling mostly to my family and to my to my friends. Um, it's because he's just, he's not working. He's walking to the beat of his own drum. He's constantly retraining and so I don't have the kind of financial support that we had all assumed that I would be able to get. His personality is very different than people would have thought um, successful or a successful relationship with me would look like. I think from an outsider's perspective, it looks like settling. He's very different from my ex. I guess, to be fair, it probably looks like settling from his perspective as well. Like his family sees him living in a different country, one that he doesn't want to be in, and he's settled as well because he's chosen something that was not the ideal by most people's standards. Felicity is very practical about her marriage. Settling has worked for her, and I kind of love her for it. Not everyone sees love and relationships this way, but is she just telling it like it is? Are all relationships average and no one's willing to admit it? I think everyone in long-term relationships is having an average relationship, but we have we haven't given enough credit to average. It's just so good. Instead of the way to elevate your own relationship in that circumstances is is to put more credence in the average and the settled and the and the predictable. It's Oh gosh, it silly seriously sounds so unrum. It's still a struggle, even though I'm happy and I know this is a thing that works to describe it. The way that I feel good about my relationship and feel like it's above average is how much work we have done to accept one another and to accept each other's failings, but also to use that to acknowledge all the great stuff. Look, it's easy to think that you're the only one in an average relationship. I mean, have you looked at Instagram lately? Literally everyone I know on there is drinking wine with their lover in Santorini right now. My eyes are sore from all the hand-holding, tongue-kissing, date nights, romantic holidays and abdominal muscles. Makes me sick. I hate them. (laughs) They're bastards. But Gemma, the clinical psychologist, says don't be fooled. Average is actually everywhere. Oh, I think definitely everyone's relationship is average most of the time. Right. (laughs) I think if you can get a special moment once a week with your partner, you're doing really, really well because we're designed almost to tune out of our partner. We're designed for novelty. We're we're designed to look at what fire is burning the brightest. Mm. So if you have all your attention on your partner every day of every week, it's because there's something wrong in the relationship and that fire is stressing you out, that that relationship is stressing you out. So your nervous system is paying a lot of attention to it. We talk about happily ever after and in social media, films, music, books, everything tells us that our soulmate is out there mm-hmm. and that they're fabulous and they're going to make our, our hearts sing, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to erupt in gladness and joy, right? We are sort of taught that we're meant to seek this out for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. What do you think about soulmates? I don't think soulmates exist per se, but I do think watching out for that feeling of infatuation and that chemistry and that coming alive with your partner is an important part of choosing a partner. I don't think it's all that useful 
to stay and commit to a long-term relationship where you haven't had the dopamine spikes and the serotonin withdrawals and the charge of adrenaline uh, when you're falling in love with this person because it means you haven't had that falling in love experience. In my experience in couples therapy, when we haven't had that experience, you know, 10 or 20 years down the track when someone else comes along, we find it really hard to resist that experience with somebody else. So I do think that that experience is an important part of the attachment and bonding process. But I'm also saying that we don't have to have that on the outset. We can wait to get to know someone and see if that develops. Sure, yeah. It's not necessarily your eyes meet across a crowded room and the the sparks fly. You bet. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it's sort of like tending a a fire, a quiet little burn, and then it it can smoulder and smoke and and then erupt into flames. You bet. Um, Or or even the smoulder and smoke will give you those feelings that we're, we're looking for. We feel better when we're around them, when that person you know, goes on a trip, we miss them. And different people experience emotions with different volumes, if you like. Some people are, you know, high as rockets and then totally sink down into the depths of despair and other people, you know, fairly cruisy around the middle section there, you know, not too high, not too low. And it's the same with falling in love. Some people experience the huge explosion and other people, as you have you said, have a slow burn and, and feel it, but feel it with a different magnitude. Some of Ladies We Need to Talk from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, an episode called Settling for Average, hosted by Yumi Steins and produced by Cassandra Steeth and Olivia Willis. The white nationalist movement that calls itself the alt-right is moving into comic books as a way of pushing its political agenda. It's a story told by Reveal, an investigative podcast aiming to change minds, laws and lives. Here's host and comic fan Al Letson. Every hero has an origin story, a tale that's fraught with drama and heartbreak. It's the fire that tempers their steel and turns them into the hero we all know and love. For Superman, it's the destruction of Krypton. If he remains here with us, he will die as surely as we will. For Batman, it's his parents' death. You ever dance with the devil by the pale moonlight? For Spider-Man, failing to save his Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben! But it's not just heroes. All of us have that pivotal moment in our lives that as small or as large as it may seem, sets us on a journey. For me, it was in a classroom. As a child, I was struggling with dyslexia and could barely read. I was teased by my classmates and generally felt like I was a big dummy. I'd work every weekend with my aunt, who was a teacher, to help me learn. But the Dick and Jane books they gave me weren't really cutting it. And then one day, my uncle bought me a stack of comic books. And like Superman being found by the Kents, everything changed. I fell in love with stories, with artwork, with reading. I don't think I'd be talking to you today if I hadn't got those comic books. They upped my reading comprehension, activated my imagination, and gave me a love for storytelling. I am and always will be a comic book nerd. Which is why my spidey sense started tingling 
when I heard about a new independent comic book titled Alt Hero. I've been trailing him for weeks. The alt in Alt Hero, of course, is a reference to the alt-right, the white nationalist movement. He could just be another vigilante. So this is a promotional video for Alt Hero. There's some comic book art of a little white girl cowering in an alley. A large brown-skinned man with a mustache menaces her. Then, a white vigilante appears out of nowhere and knocks the brown-skinned guy out and drops him off at immigration. Yeah. Cleaning up the streets, one illegal at a time. The so-called alt-right is moving into comics. And on today's show, we're going to look at that movement and how comic books, toxic fans, and social media have become a part of the culture war. And one of the soldiers in that war... It's a big step in the culture wars because it's the first time that the right is actually taking back ground that the left had previously claimed. ...is a man who has a name like a supervillain, Vox Day. Vox Day is the creator of Alt Hero. Anything the left tells us is off limits. Um, yeah, we're going to be going for that, and we're going to go for it hard. The characters in his comics have secret identities. So does he, sort of. His birth name is... Theodore Beale, and he's from Minnesota. That's Amanda Robb. Amanda's a reporter with the nonprofit newsroom, The Investigative Fund. She's writing a story on alt-right comics for Rolling Stone magazine. She interviewed Vox Day for this story. And even though he's an American white nationalist, he lives in Europe, and he is what you would call an influencer or even a thought leader of the alt-right. What else do you know about Vox Day besides that he's writing and publishing alt-hero? He runs an independent publishing house that puts out books by other extreme conservatives. He's a prolific blogger. He wrote an influential manifesto on the alt-right. By his early 30s, he was calling himself Vox Day, which means the voice of God, roughly. But sometimes he also calls himself the Supreme Dark Lord. So uh, he calls himself the Supreme Dark Lord. And then he wonders why people make him out to be evil. Yeah, it's hard to understand. Okay, so so when did the alt-hero comic book get started? Well, Vox launched a crowdfunding campaign after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. That was in August 2017, and he started crowdfunding in September. If you remember, the Unite the Right rally was when neo-Nazis and the KKK and other groups took to the streets in Charlottesville, and they were shouting things like, Jews will not replace us, and waving around Confederate flags. And, and Confederate flags seem to be a thing for Vox Day. I'm on his crowdfunding page, and there's a superhero named Rebel. She's a curvy redhead squeezed into a skimpy costume that's got the design of a Confederate flag. She also waves one around. As you can see, we're not afraid to uh, fly the Confederate flag, despite the fact that um, the left has come out so hard against it. This is from a May 2018 interview with Vox Day on InfoWars. That's the far-right website and radio show that's so extreme, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube banned it. In this interview, Vox Day is talking to InfoWars host Alex Jones. I realize that this is information warfare, and comics are paramount right now because they're archetypal, and it's something the enemy completely controls. I like the Marilyn Monroe-shaped redhead. Who is she? Oh, uh, that's Dynamique, and um, she's she's the newest recruit to the Global Justice Initiative. 
He's talking about the cover of Alt Hero. Well, I got to tell you, it's awesome because notice she doesn't look like a heroin head. She hasn't been drinking soy. She looks like a woman. <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually a lot of fun to um, go in and violate pretty much all of the SJW imperatives. When Vox Day says SJW, that's short for Social Justice Warriors, which, you know, sounds good, right? Because fighting for justice is a good thing. But apparently it's not. It's a diss that's become a buzzword for the alt-right. You know, they're chopping the hair off women. They're making all the women fat. Because they either want fat and look like a man or like an emaciated little boy, not the goddess, you know, look. Oh, exactly. And, and that's intentional. You know, if you look at what they're doing, they keep introducing more and more gay characters, more and more transgender characters. And, and this is very, very intentional. Vox Day is trying to make the argument that social justice warriors are on a mission to ruin comics with a leftist feminist diversity agenda. The marketing of Alt Hero is all about stoking those fears. Remember, this is the first comic Vox Day has ever written. The comics industry is not merely in decline, but is rapidly approaching a state of complete collapse. Al Letson in an episode of Reveal called Never Meet Your Superheroes and reveals a co-production of the Centre for Investigative Reporting and PRX. And that's all from the podcast hour for now. From me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week with more to listen to. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.